How's everybody doing this morning? So, a um, couple things. Um, I'm Derek Kirkman. It's been seven whole days since I was a believer in my own strength, recovering. Uh, now I am boasting in my weakness with the rest of you. Love you, Brad. Uh, I'm going to brag on him a little bit here in a minute. But I want to uh, take a few moments and, uh, you know, do some things that uh, they never ask us to do. And so that's what, um, why I want to take a few moments and just really communicate to all of you um, how valuable and how precious it is that you have an eldership team that loves God the way they do. Now, I know a lot of you have probably known these men longer than I have. It's only really been about close to two years for Ginger and I. But I've had the opportunity, honestly, to spend, you know, a significant amount of time with them, hearing their hearts, talking through vision, talking through where Heart of the Father is going, and a whole host of other things. And the thing that I walk away with in our discussions every single time is just a deep thankfulness to the Lord that you have such men that desire the presence of God. Amen. They desire that Jesus really would have the preeminence in all things. That's a real thing in this church. And, and unfortunately, in some respects, that seems like more of a luxury because so often in other places, um, it seems like there is so much that's emphasized outside of Christ that it becomes largely huge, uh, huge distractions. And so I just want to take a moment to encourage everyone here that leadership in the kingdom really is not an easy thing because you're juggling the needs of people and you're juggling understanding that Christ needs to be the center of it all, not you. That was for you, Mick. All right. Uh, uh, so in that, what I want to say is the most awesome thing that you truly can have in leadership are men and women of God whose hearts burn deeply for the Son of God. One of my favorite things about, um, that probably um, Barry says all the time is, is something to the effect of, he just can't stand it when God's dishonored in his own house or when someone else gets more attention than he does. So that's a real thing. And, and so this morning, I want to talk to you. I want to spend a few moments because the elders have asked me to speak into something that um, I, I thought about how to do this and really how to step into some of this. But I think the route I'm going to go this morning is um, I'm going to talk to you from the heart. I'm going to give you a lot of Bible, for sure, but if there were a title to what I was going to talk about this morning, I'd probably call it something like puncturing through the pandemonium of prophetic provoca provocateurs. <laughs> now, I'll take a minute, and we'll, we'll let you write that down. So it's puncturing through, because you know God likes alliterations, and he's really into pee right now. <clears throat> So puncturing through the pandemonium of, of prophetic provocateurs. Now, that sounds really cruel. It's really not, but I just had to come up with something to creative to get your attention. 
So by way of introduction, I'm going to hit some negatives first, but I want to, I want to, I want to lace this. I want to put this inside of a context, and I want to start our next few moments together framing something for you that I think that we always need to keep in the back of our minds, and everything that we hear needs to come through this filter. And that is this, is that if you were here in this building this morning and you bear or you carry the testimony of Jesus, we're going to talk about that, then you are part of something that is so grand and so glorious when he called you into his ecclesia that it was said of it that the mysteries of God and the manifold wisdom of God is being demonstrated through his ecclesia to all the principalities in the spirit realm. That what you and I are a part of is so grand and glorious and that Jesus, as its head, is executing flawlessly leadership over his ecclesia that will, by the end of it all, be able to, it will be said of it that, his, that this ecclesia perfectly represented and proclaimed and revealed Jesus. That really is our goal. And so this morning, I want to read to you, because all of us are acutely aware, probably most of us are probably even really tired of hearing about it, but I need to take a quick history lesson and probably the biggest statements that I want to talk about this morning came from one particular article in general. I'm going to read a couple of quotes for you. But one article that I read and doing a little bit of research said that literally upwards of 30 different leaders prophetically predicted a 2020 win for Trump. Now I'm going to just go ahead and give you a a disclaimer that I'm, I'm about as pro-Trump as it gets, all right? So, so there's nothing in my heart. I believed in what, uh, the, what, what the Lord was doing through him. I was never under any illusion about his weaknesses, and he's got a lot of boasting to do, amen? And, but in the process of that, um, so, so there's nothing in me that wants to attack the former president because I do believe that he was, in his own way, the Lord was able to use him. All right, But the same article, another article goes on to, to describe the events of this past election this way. The January 20th inauguration date doesn't really mean anything, one person said. In a January 29th video, which has gotten upwards of easily over 100,000 views on YouTube, according to the person, more than 100 other credible, in quotes, Christian prophets around the world had likewise declared that Trump somehow would be restored to power soon. Another quote from the same article, there are dozens of Christian prophets in America, religious leaders with followings among Pentecostal and charismatic Christians who claim the ability to predict the future based on dreams, visions, and other supernatural phenomena. Now, again, this is written by a, uh, what I believe to be a secular person. All right? So they don't have any kind of uh, inclination toward the kingdom that I'm aware of. Some prophets are church leaders, while others operate independently outside of the church. There are, and, and catch this, there are no official requirements for prophet status, 
though followers genuinely expect prophets to get at least a few of the prophecies right. That's a little snarky, but it really is true. Like, if you're going to be a prophet, we need, we need to think about percentages. How much of what you're saying really is accurate? Okay? We're not wrong to believe that. Next up, another interesting quote. Not all prophets have doubled down on their Trump prophecy since the election. However, and as some have backed away from Trump, a schism within the church has emerged. At least six recognized prophets who initially predicted a Trump re-election have acknowledged those prophecies were wrong. They now say they are deeply troubled by their peers' refusal to acknowledge the same and worry that allegiance to Trump could threaten the prophetic tradition itself. They don't get nervous on me. This whole message isn't going to be politics, I promise. On January the 23rd of this year, Michael Brown, Dr. Michael Brown, goes on to Twitter and he states this, to every leader who prophesied that Trump would remain in the White House, this is not about you right now. He goes on to say, this is about the name of Jesus being mocked and his people left in confusion and disappointment. I urge you to put your focus there and not on your own ministry or your reputation. Come on, that's real, folks. He goes on to say in an interview, I think later, Dr. Brown is quoted as saying, this has opened the door to outright delusion. Brown said in an interview, as a full-blooded charismatic, I'll say we've earned the world's mockery for our foolishness. And then two other notable quotes about this. A research professor at Tyndale University in Toronto tracked more than 500 prophecies about Trump by more than 100 different prophets that occurred over a 15-year period and when they looked at the averages, they found that the batting average of accuracy in the prophets was or in the prophecies were extremely low. Like when you talk about and consider all 500 of these prophecies, very few of them actually got it accurately correct, or it was ac actually found to be accurate. And then he goes on to say, "My research showed that the prophecies are usually vague and sometimes just outright totally wrong." And then lastly, one particular person in the movement, a prophet, said this, who's, who's pretty, pretty well known as a prophetic voice, said this, I believe some prophets who prophesied a Trump win, now again, this person who stated this was one of those, said that uh, Trump, a Trump win, so uh, I believe some prophets who prophesied a Trump win never heard God at all. They merely tapped into the popular prophetic opinion because it was what so many in the church wanted to hear. And so this morning, what I don't want to do is, is we're not going to take an opportunity to be critical. We're not going to tear people down because that doesn't do anything. What we are going to do is, as, as Barry's kind of been chiding me out, we're going to bring back into alignment this morning the prophetic 
and we're going to put it back into what we believe its proper order should be. And believe it or not, we are not running away from the prophetic. We're running to it, but we're running to it decently and in order. All right? Because this morning, and I'm going to take you through right now a little tour what I believe will be very helpful to understanding what is the role of the prophetic. For some of us in the house this morning, this may be an entirely new concept to you. We don't really know maybe where all of you have come from and what what you've been exposed to. But um, for most of you who've been here for any length of time, you know that this house was generally pioneered by one who is regarded to be a national level prophet. So most of us have have had exposure and quite a bit of it to prophetic culture in general. But even outside of that, where does the prophetic fit into kingdom culture? In other words, is it something that we can just take or leave? Is it something that builds huge Facebook followings? Do we get to just kind of prophesy everything that comes into our head? And to that I say a resounding no. We shouldn't say everything that pops into our head. And really, when it comes down to the prophetic, realize that, that, that oftentimes when a person prophesies something this, that is inaccurate, that does not make them a false prophet. What a false prophet is is someone who leads you away from Christ, who preaches a different Christ other than the biblical one, who is operating in a deception for the purpose to bring you out of communion with the authentic Jesus. Now, there's a lot of that out there. There's a lot of new age, a lot of syncretism, a lot of stuff. But just because a person misses a prophecy in their accuracy doesn't mean they're a false prophet. So, so can I just maybe start off this morning and say, can we lose that in our vocabulary? Can, can we get rid of this idea that we have the right to criticize and be critical about every? Because these are the believers, these are people that God loves. Now, am I saying we don't hold them accountable? No, we have to. We, we can't let people come into the body and spread confusion and disillusion through gifts of the Spirit. And so that's not what I'm proposing, but what I'm saying is that we can't operate in a critical spirit and label everyone false prophets that simply misses it, even when it happened at a grand scale like it did. Um, so I'm going to make a couple of things to you. So in our little journey this morning, I want to tell you, give you a few examples in my own life because, you know, it's funny. Last year, I hit 50 and I woke up and said, Ginger, how in the world did that happen? <laughs> and in my 30 years, I would say, really probably 35 of, of being saved and in the kingdom, Man, I've seen a lot of happens. I was around during the 80s when the Kansas City prophets rose, and, and, and there's been a lot of prophetic chatter and talk over the last three decades. And even in my own life, for those of you who we've had the opportunity to sit down and you've heard the bigger parts of my story, and those of you who haven't, let me just give it to you quickly uh, in a nutshell. My entire 30 years, really even b before that, has been absolutely defined by the prophetic. That the major periods of my life that I've encountered, my wife's life, our ministry together, has been literally guided by prophetic words. 
some of the greatest warfare that we've gone through in our lives, we were able to war with, with the prophetic words that we got, just like Paul told Timothy to do. And so even in my own life as a minister who has operated and uh, ministered in the prophetic for 30 years, I not only have been a profoundly received prophetic ministry, I've also offered it. And I can stand here and boast in my weakness that there have probably been many times where I was flat out wrong in what I prophesied. And I can tell you that in my heart, I never wanted to prophesy a name for myself. If anything, I wanted so much for the person to be touched that I was tempted to step over into something out of my good nature and want to encourage, to encourage them maybe in a way that God really wasn't. So, so you see, motives aren't always the indicator of prophesying something wrong. But you know, a couple ones that come to mind that many of you have heard at the age of seven, I don't even know who Jesus was, but he came to me in a dream and he told me that my mom would pass away the next day. He told me that he, she would be with him forever and that he would never leave me or forsake me. And it wouldn't be till six years later that he would introduce himself to me and I would realize that it was Jesus who came to me in a dream. Shortly after that, years later, we would be in the ministry and, or we would be getting ready to pre be prepared for the ministry. I was so discouraged because I knew God was calling me to be a worship leader, but in my heart I was still kind of orphaned and wanted to make I, I figured figured I had to help God do it somehow. And when he closed every door and left me completely powerless to do anything, he had a worship leader tell me one day when I was whining to him, saying, I don't know how God's ever going to do this. And he said, you know, you're just going to get a call out of the blue one day and God's going to put you in the ministry. And two weeks later, that call came. The craziest story how it all happened. There was another time when I had had a profound prophetic dream. It was about, I think it was a dream. It might have been a vision. It's been years ago, and I couldn't find it in my journal. But the Lord had given me this vivid picture of what he was wanting to do in prayer and how he was calling us to really build a prayer culture in a church that I was pastoring. And I remember waking up one morning, and I believe it was on the 700 Club, one of the um, hosts was interviewing Pastor Jim Cimbala, or Cimbala of, of, of the Brooklyn Tabernacle. And he had just written, was promoting a new book, and the name of the book was called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. What happens when God's spirit invades the hearts of his people? How many of you ever read that? Come on, somebody. So, so I remember reading that, and I remember I, when I was watching that on TV, I heard the Lord say, and we got to be careful when we say that, but I believe I heard the Lord say in my spirit, I want you to leave the house right now. I want you to go to your mother-in-law's house. A copy of this book is waiting for you there. Honestly, I didn't think I was the deep, wonderful, um, deeply God's man of faith and power. I'm in my car going, I'll bet this is wrong. I bet this is my imagination and this probably wasn't God. Like I'm, I'm erring toward the doubt. Like, I'm not in faith at all. I'm just going to be honest with you and boast in my weakness here, folks. It's true. It really is true. And so I get to the house, and I say, hey, Margaret, strange thing. Um, God told me there's a book here waiting for me. And can, uh, can I look at your bookshelves? And 
um, you know, find it there and see if it's here? She goes, no, it's probably not. But I'll tell you what did happen. I had a next door neighbor that had died and she had decided to give me all of her books and that book was sitting at the top of the box. So, so you can see, uh, that's just a small thing. In 2017, a few years ago, the Lord was essentially putting a period on what I would describe probably 28 years of wilderness experience. And I had gone through what I can only describe. It wasn't angelic encounters. I'm like, Lord, why can't I get dreams like Jeremiah or just like, why can't it be like really cool stuff like I'm walking in heaven looking at stuff? No, I had to go through the dark night of the soul. I had to go through deep depression. I had to go through... Um, you know, really coming to reality about my orphaned heart and my mentality. I need a little bit of emotional discipleship. But, but in the process of that, God took me through about a seven-day encounter, and at the end of it, he sent a prophetess from another state, happened to, some of you met her, it's Kim Weir. She happened to just be coming at the right time, and she sat down at the table not knowing any of what had happened to me, and she verbatim said, Derek, this is what God just did in your life and prophesied to me about what he had just taken me through and what he was getting ready to take us into. And then the last thing maybe I will talk about is us getting here. Many of you know the story. Jeremiah was, had extended a couple of invitations just to come down here. Uh, if you're watching this, I mean, one of his favorite ones was, uh, like, he's not preaching today, he's preaching tonight, but, um, like, one of his favorite ones, well, why are you hanging out with the apostles in Jacksonville? All the prophets are in Lakeland. Oh <laughs> now, he was kidding, so I don't want to get him too out, off there, but, but there was, a, you know, a little bit of element of truth to it, but, um, so anyway, uh, you know, he invites us to come down and see what God's doing at Maranatha, and I was already sort of resistant, but there was a part of us that knew, if you knew the story in 2017, when, when it became evident that the Lord was moving us out of Montana, the first thing we started praying for was our people. Like, show us who our people are. We weren't interested in what my next ministry gig was or what I was going to Like, who are the people we're called to? Because I believe it's what, in Acts 19, when you're among your people, then it's there that God says, set apart from me, Saul and Barnabas, the work I've called them. When you're among your people, you find your purpose. And so, so we knew there was something intuitively in us that knew. Um, I, I don't think we had owned it and spoke it out loud, but there was something in us that knew that while we spent a year in Jacksonville, we were headed to Lakeland. We just didn't know when. And we didn't even entirely know why. But in the process of that, um, Jeremiah said, hey, in two weeks, come on down and see what God's doing at Lakeland. That night, I had a dream. And this scrawny little man with like a beard came up to me. And he walks up to me and he says, when are you coming to Lakeland to raise up sons for the Father? And uh, I'll never forget, coming two weeks later, we walk into the Maranatha prayer meeting in the morning that they were having, and that young man was praying in the night, in the mic, and his name is Isaac Farias. To the T, I didn't even think he was real until I saw him. And I love, I'm only saying because I love him deeply. But, but, but you, can you start to see that in our lives, this is just a sampling of how God has used prophetic ministry to guide us 
literally along most of the paths of our life. There's nothing in me that hates it or despises it or that's even afraid of it. I rejoice and celebrate in it. All right, so let me give you one other thing here. Moving forward, let's take a quick tour through Scripture, and then I'm going to start to land this plane with some practicals about how we can reset the prophetic here and about how you can ensure that as we go forward, you can embrace the prophetic, but you can be smart about it, and you don't ever have to be deceived by it, and you don't ever have to be discouraged by it. In Numbers 11, it's a funny, probably, probably an interesting, really story, interesting story in the Old Testament. Moses gets, liberates a bunch of bodies out of Egypt. And then they're saying, man, we had it easier back in Egypt. Listen, we want to go back to Egypt. And, and Moses is like having one of these kind of like what we, what we would call like these prophetic mood swings. He's like really down on himself, feeling sorry for himself. And he's like, God, you must really hate me to put me in charge of all these people. And I know lots of pastors say that. And then, um, so Moses uh, is talking to God, he's whining to God. God says, all right, take, take among you men. I'm going to put the same spirit upon you. I believe it was 70 elders. I'm going to put the same spirit upon you, on them. Bring them to the tent of meeting on a certain day. And when you do, the glory of God's going to come down. He's going to put your spirit, the same spirit that I put on you, on them. And they're going to help you lead these people. And so in Numbers 11, you see this. And the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke to them. And he took the same spirit that was on Moses and he put it on 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they did what? They prophesied. What you're going to see throughout scripture is generally the most common response to the presence of God is for God to speak through prophecy. We're not divorcing prophecy. We're putting it back in its right place. So it goes on to say in verse 26, but two men remained in the camp. One was Eldad and the other was Medad. It's kind of interesting, something about their dad. But um, <laughs> and the spirit rested on them. Now they were those in the registration. In other words, Moses had selected them to be a part, to be one of the 70 elders, two of the 70 elders. Yet they didn't, for some reason, found something more important than being in the tent when God was going to show up. Don't get that. But anyway, a young man runs to Moses. Eldad and Medad are out prophesying in the camp. They're not even here, and the Spirit of God fell on them, and they're prophesying outside of the meeting. The young man runs to Moses. Moses says something deeply profound. My Lord Moses stopped them from prophesying. And in verse 29, Moses says, are you jealous for me? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. Your translation might say it this way, I wish that all the Lord's people would prophesy. And then a few chapters later, a few books later, a few hundreds of years later, um, Joel comes on the scene and he answers Jeremiah and he says, and afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will what? Prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my men servants and maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Then a few, I don't know, five or ten minutes later, no, not really. A few years later, Peter stands up. They had just seen Christ ascend into heaven. 
He told him to wait for the promise. That promise came, and it is so profound that they all began to speak in other tongues, and all the different people groups, the, the nations and tribes and ethnoses that were present that day began to hear them declare the glory of God in their own language. And then what does he do? He stands up and he says, remember what Joel prophesied? This is that. He says, then Peter stood up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the crowd, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen carefully to my words. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel in the last days in Acts 2. He says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. How do we know it's the last days? Because he poured out his spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Now, I don't understand Jeremiah's thing because, like, he was really young when he started dreaming. But even on my men servants and maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. A few chapters later, a few years later, in Acts 19, Paul begins to minister. And, and it is said of him that when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with other tongues, and they all prophesied. When the Holy Spirit came, when the presence of God revealed himself, the natural inclination is to prophesy and to speak under the unction of that presence. You guys see in the pattern? Then lastly, a familiar passage we've been teaching out of last year in 1 Corinthians 14.1 However, keep on eagerly seeking the things of the Spirit and especially seek to be able to prophesy. In the next couple of verses, he says, goes on to explain that someone prophesying is speaking to people, edifying, encouraging, and comforting them, and predicting elections and predicting natural disasters. Oh, I'm sorry, this is the Kirkman translation. Hey, if Paul can say, will you just indulge me in a little foolishness? I can too. All right? So a person speaking in a tongue does edify himself, but a person prophesying edifies the congregation. And in that, I wish you would all speak in tongues, but even more, I wish that you would all prophesy. So let me make a couple statements about what we just read. Number one, we are all prophetic, every single one of us. The moment you say, I'm not prophetic, you're entirely 100% wrong. So stop agreeing with the enemy. So why are you prophetic? Does that mean that we all have the gift of prophecy? No. What it does mean, though, is, as you're going to see here in the next couple of verses, that you can't even enter the kingdom of God without a prophetic revelation of the Son of God. That the only way you can step in, you can come and I'm going to just say this like it is, you can sit in a building year after year, week after week, all your days, 
But if you do not carry the revelation of who the Son of God is, you're really not part of his ecclesia. That is why we believe that we preach a gospel that, that creates the opportunity for the Father, which is in heaven, to put that revelation in your heart, and it's his desire to do so. But understand that we are all prophetic because we can only be truly his when who he is is prophetically revealed to us. All right, next, I want to say this statement, that everything Jesus does is prophetic. There is nothing that he can do or will do. There's nothing that he says. There's no action that he takes that doesn't have prophetic implications and consequences. And one last just kind of bold statement I want to make here is that prophets and prophecies do not replace the word and the spirit. In fact, scripture says we have a more sure word of prophecy. They are not a replacement. They are an additive. They are a kind of the spice that points you back to what is the stable, what is the thing that you, what is the constant that you and I come to. And that more sure word of prophecy is the one that's been written in this book over thousands of years. And it's important to make that delineation because in an age where we can become enamored with the sensational Everything that does not have its origin in this book is illegal. I was leading worship one time for a really well-known, he was actually got a lot of, a lot of press during the Trump um, uh, pandemonium here. And uh, it was a few years ago before all this happened and I had the occasion to lead worship for him and he got up and he started preaching. And the moment he threw out the word, now I'm going to talk to you a little bit this evening. I'm going to give you some exotic theology. My alarm went off, and I, went, I, I kept hearing danger, 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 heresy alert, heresy alert, heresy alert, because there is no such thing as exotic theology, right? That's just, that's just code language for what I'm getting ready to teach you is really not in the Bible. And in fact, I believe it was Paul that was said, we, none of us have a license to preach above or beyond what is written. It's off limits and illegal to teach and preach something that isn't clearly established in the Word of God. I don't care who's doing it. And so he went on to, I know inevitably you're asking, well, what was the exotic theology? All right, so I'm going to give it to you in a nutshell. And this is bad stuff. He said, you know, in Hebrews, Enoch lived his life in such a way that he became such a pleasure with God that he didn't taste death and that you and I, if we can become a pleasure of God, we won't taste death. Now, now, can I just tell you that? There's no prophetic interpretation there. That's false doctrine. And, and what I'm trying to tell you is, is that the most sure word of prophecy, because Scripture in and of itself says that every word that's in this book came because God spoke to men prophetically and they wrote down what they heard and what, they, what was revealed to them. So this entire word is prophetic and it was written out of the prophetic. 
Therefore, all of the origin and everything that we build upon since this time, since the canon was canonized, we have to understand has to originate and find its, find its foundation in the word because if it's exotic or foreign to the word, it's illegal to us. All right, so let me say a couple more things here. If I can bring this all to one big context, I want to I I take a few moments and tell you why I think we're in the situation that we're in right now. And the first thing that I want to tell you is many are going to say to you that the prophetic movement today needs a cleansing and a purging. How many of you would agree with that? I think books have been written about it. But here's the problem in that statement. The problem in the prophetic movement isn't that it's not pure, it's that it's a movement. Because the problem in this statement is the only thing, the singular thing that Jesus said he is building is what? Ecclesia. Believe it or not, he's not building a prayer movement. He's not building a worship movement. He's not building a Nazarite movement. He's not building any other kind of movements. He's building one thing, Matthew 16. I will build... I don't in any way diminish these things, but I'm telling you the only thing that has a lasting value, and how do I know that? Because the book of Revelation gives me a glimpse. In Revelation 7, then I saw a great multitude from every tongue, nation, and tribe. So we know that what it is that Jesus is building, he will fully build. And on that day in Revelation 7, there will stand generations of believers called into ecclesia in every age and he will present them faultless to the Father. So my heart to you this morning is that we can't bring purity to something that in a lot of ways doesn't have a legal right to exist. Now I know that's sharp. Now if I, how now, now here's the thing. If I'm making you mad this morning, it's okay. If I'm not making you mad, don't worry. There's still time. <laughs> Here's the problem with movements. When we look at movements, what they really are, when you break them down into their lowest common denominator, is they are exaggerations of something we didn't like or something that we feel is wrong and so we build a movement around it. And what a movement generally does, if it's not right in the middle of what Jesus is building, it distracts away from what he's building. So I can tell you that in my short 28 years, Randy has me beat by a long shot, but um, in my short 28 years, I've been a part of several movements. And can I just be honest with you? This is not the cynic talking. But every one of them promised, promised a lot and delivered little. And the reason why, not saying that out of disappointment, the reason why, because a lot of it was built on sensationalism, not the supernatural. And, and the problem with this is, as long as I understand one central truth, and we're going to get into that right now, 
But I have to understand, I can't correct something. The only way to really correct it and to bring purity to it is to call people back to what they should be focused on, and that's not a prophetic movement. I've been, a, I've been recognized as a prophetic voice virtually everywhere I've gone. And can I tell you, for 28 years, I am not a card-carrying member of the prophetic movement. And to be honest with you, I could care less about it. The only thing that I'm 100% focused on is what Jesus is building, and that's his ecclesia. That's what I'm giving my time and my life to. Now, in saying that, I'm not issuing a critical indictment of the people who are, are heading these movements. But what I am saying is, wouldn't it stand to reason that sons of God who really have the heart of their father and want Jesus, their elder brother, to get everything that his father promised him as an inheritance, wouldn't it stand the reason that you and I would want to jump into what he's building instead of asking him to build what we want to build? The problem with movements is they exaggerate and they distract. And I want to make one last statement, then we're going to get into some good stuff. Many of you will agree. I know Barry does because we talk, we talk at each other about it all the time. I, I'm going to have to say this is an arbitrary number, but I, I, I'm just going to be honest with you. I love the Holy Spirit. I mean, man, I, I love him deeply. I love the gifts of the Spirit. I, I absolutely love it when God rocks people's world and when they're feeling unseen, suddenly they're seen because a prophetic word is delivered to them. We're going to do something like that here in a few minutes. But, but I want to tell you that much of the charismatic culture is really built on sensationalism and exaggeration. The problem is it's never going to be as good as what, what many are trying to lead you to believe it is because it's false. It's not true. You can, you can easily go down, and when I say false, what do I mean by that? Good intentions, yes. No support. Do you realize that a lot of what's happening in charismatic culture today is literally just made up? Like, like you can't go into the Bible and see a lot of what's being taught anywhere. I, I can name in five, like right now, five very common popular things that are being communicated in the charismatic movement right now that that is so it's getting people so distracted away to the to to the uh, to the side issues that it's that it's detracting away from the main thing which is Jesus now I, now now you have to hear what i'm saying here there's one popular teaching that suddenly just miraculously arrived on the scene by revelation that generations and generations and generations and generations of believers before them never even had language for something like that. Yet suddenly we can't live without it. Yet suddenly such this sophisticated doctrine has been presented that we have to go before a court in heaven and that a case has to be weighed. Where is that in the Bible? Like, like where does it say that you and I have to go into a heavenly court and have a trial with the Son of God. If Paul were here, he'd be saying, you need to hang on to the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And if somebody comes and preaches something different, don't receive it. Now, I know that's probably right. I could feel the tension when I said that. But I'm just trying to tell you, I don't demean any person who's saying that, but I'm saying if we preach 
above, and we teach above what is laid out in Scripture and not prophetic interpretations of Scripture. This stuff's real. When this stuff was written in the Bible, it had specific meaning to the people who were reading it. And they weren't all these prophetic interpretations about things. Now, I, I can see a lot of things as a parable and allegory, but what I'm trying to pull you into and encourage you into is that if we allow sensationalism to be our guide to interpret Scripture, we'll get it wrong every time. It's a more sure word of prophecy. It's only sure because it's established and it's foundational and it's not open to multiple points of views and prophetic interpretations. So let's say this. The reason why I believe that we've had such a dilemma with the prophetic throughout the years in the 80s, it kicked up really big. I'll never forget the, uh, the, uh, the front page on Charisma talking about the one group of prophets that, that had emerged and caught the attention of the world and uh, the, the uh, Charisma article proclaimed them to be preaching heresy. Right on the front page. And, and so then you had, in that situation, an extreme. And, and the rest of the body of Christ was ripe for it because you had another extreme. And so movements are born, usually, in the middle of two extremes. So when we look at the prophetic, what you had is one extreme... And these two extremes, I believe, are in the majority, not the minority. In other words, when you look at the prophetic landscape, possibly, definitely in America, but possibly in the rest of the world, you see in abundance one of two extremes, sometimes even both. On the one extreme is there's an outright rejection of the prophetic that God really doesn't speak to you and I today. There's a cessation of the gifts. You're going to go to many places that, that, that are lovers of Jesus, but they outright reject the fact that the Holy Spirit isn't really speaking to us outside of his word today. And so in the vacuum of no Holy Spirit and no activity, there is ripe for a hunger that will lead you into something sensational, not authentically supernatural. On the other side is the exact polar opposite where the spirit is so exaggerated and so overemphasized, and yep, we're going to go there. One of the, uh, probably the best examples was when I was pastoring in Indiana and a young lady was attending our church and we would have Friday night meetings, but she could never attend those Friday nights because she used to go over to this one church that if you looked them up in the phone book, their under their name, it was this church's name. I don't know if there exists today, but I'm not going to tell you their name. But the name, it was the name, and the byline under it was the Prophecy Church. And so every Friday night, she'd go, so I can't make your meetings, I have to go prophesy. And so... Uh, I get this phone call one day. This young lady is very distraught. And in her distress, she, she simply asks, she leads with, why did God lie to me? And I kind of feel like I almost ran off the road because that was just the most ridiculous statement I think I've ever heard. But I, but I kept my composure and I said, well, what do you mean, why did God lie to you? And she said, well, our favorite cat got out of the house, ran out into the road, and got hit by a car and killed. 
My, I was horrified. My kids were horrified. I ran out to, to the corpse of my dead cat, and, I, and the Lord told me that if I would put this cat in a plastic bag and throw it in the freezer, true story, I'm not kidding, throw it in the freezer, that there was going to come a time, and if I pray and fast for the next couple of weeks, he was going to call me to take the cat out, we're going to pray for it, and God was going to resurrect it. Now, in my comment, in my, in my you know, I, I, the temptation was strong. I mean, it, the, the scoff was strong in me. Like, I kind of wanted to, but I didn't do that. Because this was, she was really sincere. She was really devastated. And so I began to encourage her. I couldn't help it. I had to slide one. I said, well, what did the prophecy church tell you? <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. So she says, well, you know, I called the leader over there. And this is this is really explains it all. The leader said that God will often have us do acts of obedience that if we obey enough, then we'll actually start to see the result of our obedience. And so I said, in other words, God lied to you to get you to be obedient, but he was never going to actually do what he said he was going to do. Is that what you're telling me? Well, she didn't want to admit that. And to make matters worse, she couldn't see her own mistake in it. It was God's fault, and she didn't trust him anymore because he was a liar. So my point in telling you all of that is that the prophetic in her life and the exposure that she had had to it was out of order. Now, let me, let me bring you into the good news, and we're going to land this plane. What time is it? All right, so I said a lot here, so 12.01. So I'll land quickly, I promise. All right, how many closings do I get? Three? Three? Okay. No, that's not fair. No, two didn't count because I didn't say it. Guys, man, I still have four whole pages. I should get a closing for each header. All right. I want to wind this down, and I want to talk to you about the testimony of Jesus being the spirit of prophecy, all right? In Matthew 16, Jesus goes to Caesarea Philippi, one of my favorite, this is by far my favorite passage in all of scripture. Jesus walks 30 miles outside of his way. He goes to Caesarea Philippi. Any, any reasonable Jew would never go there because it was a city of pagans. It had a dark history of all sorts of demonic activity and, and animal sacrifices to the god Pan. Many of you who have gone to Israel today have seen this place in Caesarea Philippi, but against the backdrop of the mountain of the gods or the gates of hell, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? Probably the better way to say it was, given who I am, what do people say my mission is? In other words, do they know that I'm the Christ, the Messiah? And they give some answers that are written down in history. And then he asks again, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter speaks up and he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Sorry, I can't even say that without getting choked up. But in that, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father, which is in heaven. We can't even come to know God without a prophetic revelation from the Father. 
Why does that, why does that choke me up? <clears throat> because, take a quick departure. This doesn't count on my closing. <laughs> I'm going to take a quick departure, and I'm going to say this because I was in such depravity that I didn't even have the ability to recognize who Jesus was until the Father put the revelation of it in my heart. He goes on to say, but you are Peter and on this rock, what rock? A lot of wordplay, a lot of metaphor, a lot of parable in that statement. Don't have time to go into it. But upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of hell will not prevail. And he goes on to say that that rock is the testimony of Jesus that you and I carry. That we come, in, we come into the kingdom with a, a simple seed of the revelation that Jesus is who he says he is. And the work of God that he begins to develop in my life throughout the course of my life, what the greatest goal that he's calling me to is, is to mature what started as a seed of revelation and that he, he desires to bring it into full maturity so that when I hit Ephesians 4.11, that maturity is measured, that revelation that I carry, that testimony that's on the inside of me that I carry is now measured against the full measure and the stature of Christ. I enter the ecclesia through an individual revelation. I function in the ecclesia and God increases our revelation corporately. This is why I can only go so far individually, and this is why God calls me into a shareholding relationship with Ecclesia, because his goal is to raise the level of revelation of Jesus in the house. All prophetic words, all prophetic ministry that does not, as its focal point, point you to the revelation of Jesus Christ is not worth listening to. Now, I know there's a lot in that. There's a lot of personal prophetic ministry that we do. But I have to tell you that the testimony of Jesus, and again, this isn't the scripture we pull out every time we want to have testimony service. That's really not what that's about. What it's talking about is that that testimony of who he is and what his mission is and what he's doing and all that he's building is on the inside of us. And as it increases and it grows and we become conformed into that image and part of that process is learning and going to the cross and having the cross stripping us of all of our earthly ability, all of our soul power, all of our human ingenuity till we come to the point where we are no longer self-sufficient, where we no longer depend on our accolades, where we no longer depend on our ability to pray and produce something that we can't produce in and of ourselves. When we come to the point where we're reduced to the lowest common denominator, where there is no self-less, and all that we can do is boast in our weaknesses, and then the revelation of Christ becomes great on the inside of us. Because I'm the one that's standing in the way of how big God really is. So I'm going to close with this. 
Revelations 19, can, can I just read this to you? After all these things, I heard what sounded like the loud voice A vast throng in heaven sang. Sorry. Hebrews talks about Abraham seeing a city whose builder and maker is God. The thing, and I, I say this with, with a fear in my heart, the thing that haunts my vision, and it's not really haunt, it, 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 it's the obsession of what I see in my spirit all the time, is God raising up a people at the end of the age where where the only thing that we could do is worship him and marvel at the ability of the strength of God to produce a people in every generation and raise them up at the last day in spite of my weaknesses. So he goes on to say, because his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality and has avenged the blood, or avenged the blood of his servants poured out. And then he says, then a second time the crowd shouted, hallelujah, the smoke rises from her forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures threw themselves to the ground and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. It can't even be worship unless it's prophetic. Goes on to talk about the wedding supper of the lamb. And then in verse 7, let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory because the wedding celebration of the Lamb has come. She was permitted to be dressed in bright, clean, fine linen. Then the angel said to me, write the following, blessed are those who are invited to the banquet at the wedding celebration of the Lamb. He also said to me, these are the true words of God. And then in verse 10, so then I threw myself down at his feet to worship the angel that had shown it to him. And what did he say? The angel said, don't do this. I'm only a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony about Jesus. Why is there no prophetic movement? Because, it can, because the only thing that can exist is what points us to and flows out of the testimony of Jesus that you and I carry. If it puts our attention to anything other than that, it is unworthy to even be given time or energy or effort to. And so I wanna say that the reason why we have prophetic movements and the reason why we have some of the mayhem and the way that we're gonna have to bring this thing back into order is simply this. That kingdom leaders exist really for one reason 
more than any other. In Ephesians 4 and 11, I won't go there because time has escaped us. But Ephesians 4, 11 through 22, Paul really writes and helps us to put into context what leaders do in the body. The pastor, the prophet, the teacher, evangelist, the apostle. For the equipping of the saints, it says. And so you could think of it this way that any leader in the body of Christ, their primary job description is to begin to water and to grow that testimony that you carry on the inside of you. That slope's supposed to go up. They're supposed to help enlarge your heart so that you can receive and begin to see more of the Son of God. If I'm drawing you off into endless controversies and movements and I'm pointing your attention everywhere else but Jesus, what could be more interesting than Jesus? The Bible says of him that in Colossians 1.18 that God made him the preeminent, that in all things he would be first, that in all things he would be the center, that even in Ephesians 4.11, what is it that he ascended into heaven first so that he could fill all things, that what Jesus is currently doing in the world is not spawning additional movements. He's bringing and building for himself a building, a body, and a bride that he can completely fill with himself. Our divine, our divine preoccupation isn't with the apostolic, and I know everybody here is an apostle. I'm just kidding. But our, our divine preoccupation isn't with the apostles, it isn't with prophets or any other fivefold ministry gift, it isn't with any other movement. We are a community of people who are divinely preoccupied with Christ, such that at the end of his life, Paul said, all the other things that were interesting to me, I now consider loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing him. And so the way that we bring correction, the way that we bring alignment back into is number one, we have to first get rid of all of our idolatry that we use to idolize God's people, God's, God's leaders. And what propagates a lot of this stuff in, 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 in our thinking is that a lot of times we follow a lot of these ministries because we believe they can have something that you and I can't, so we have to follow the leader in order to get it. Now that doesn't diminish grace. That doesn't diminish the fact that all of us are 100% equal in quality, but we're not all 100% equal in function. In other words, you may not be called to do the same thing I'm called to do. But nonetheless, even in what I'm called to do, I don't have access to certain parts of God that you don't. And so what we have to do is come back to a place where we realize that every leader that has a mouth and a voice to God has to continually call the people back to the divine preoccupation of Christ because nothing else matters. You know, the Bible says that the Spirit of God searches the deep things of God and he still has found no end to it. That the moment you would be tempted to say, I'm bored with Jesus, we talk about him too much, then understand that even the Holy Spirit is the ultimate web crawler, is going out and crawling the interwebs of God's mysteries and still can't find an end to them. That we could spend the entire lifetime and never even come close to one minutia of the depth and the mystery of God. And so this morning, I want to do this. 
There was a lot I could have said, a lot I didn't say. But I want to I want to finish up this morning and I want to offer you two things. One, I want to call you to a place where you don't despise prophecy. First Thessalonians says it this way: that in talking about the prophetic, Paul urges us, first of all, not to despise prophecy, but then he also urges us to always test it. You should always test prophetic words. You should always come to the place when someone would say, I'm speaking to you prophetically, there should be a test in your heart to see if that's true. And oftentimes that testing process requires and really demands that you talk to leaders that God has put in your life. Many times, I mean, this is why elders are here. They're here, they're able to govern God's house under a supernatural ability by virtue of their position of elders. God will give them insight to help you work through prophetic words. You shouldn't run from elders, you should run to them. So the first thing I want to call you to this morning is if you've ever had the disappointment of a prophetic word, maybe it wasn't untrue, maybe it was true, or was untrue, maybe it's delayed and you're still wondering if it ever come to pass, I want you to do a heart check this morning and I want you to ask yourself, is there anything in me that, that, that despises or resists what I would qualify as authentic prophecy? Number two, and if that's you, I want, I want us to take a few minutes and I want us to do a little business with God because in that same verse in Thessalonians, the precursor to it is do not quench the Holy Spirit. And then what follows after that is don't despise prophecy and test all things to see whether or not they're good. So one of the things that the Bible specifically connects to quenching the Holy Spirit is despising prophecy. But folks, we don't have to despise it. We just have to demand that it operate in its place and in order. All right, so if that's you this morning, I wanna, I wanna address you. Now I wanna do, and then number two, I wanna do this. If you, are, if you believe you've gotten an authentic, so let me do this, uh, our prophetic team, altar team, deacons, if you guys wanna come up here and stand up at the front. Uh, for me real quick and uh, we're gonna uh, we're gonna uh, probably call some people for but I'm gonna have you get in place real quick and I'm not gonna take all day promise I know some of you got I mean we got an appointment at that restaurant all right so but if you're waiting and you're warring and you know I forgot to share one quick thing and I'm gonna share it you know the most potent thing and it's important to what we're doing here last year I was teaching on the gifts and I get this little text from Brandon a little voice text, and he says, hey, Brother Derek, you, you know, I, I feel like the Lord's telling me that you're, you're going to come into some warfare. The enemy's going to try to put confusion in your mind. And he says a couple other things. And he says, you know, but the Lord's telling me you need to stand on what you've been taught. You need to stand on your principles. He's going to carry you through that. And I remember when he said it to me, I went, that's awesome. You know, amen. I was feeling really good, like in the zone, you know. But the thing about it was, it wasn't until a couple of months later 
that that word started coming to pass. Didn't even realize it until he reminded me of it. That the Lord saw that I was going to come under some demonic attack. And he spoke through a brother. And he said, Derek, this is what's coming. And when it gets here, this is what I want you to do about it. That's the real prophetic. That's what eldering, that's what, that's what eldering under the anointing looks like. And so when he did that, we were talking about it recently, and I'd forgotten all about that word, but you know, all of it came to pass because what prompted him to reshare it with me was I was talking about how I fell back on the principles of what God originally told me to get through the struggle. Where a week ago I was sitting down talking to Mary about an internal wrestle I was having. That's the beauty of the prophetic. So I want to do something to you this morning. I want to do three things, or two things. These people are up here. Most of these people have been trained in the prophetic. All of them probably have experience. And if you want some ministry this morning, either A, you want to get free of despising prophecy, or two, you want someone to come into agreement with a word that you've been standing on and believing with, that I'm going to have one of these people, I'm going to have you come up to one of these people here in a few minutes. And I'm going to have them agree with you. It's not going to be crazy. You're not going to feel awkward. But we're going to agree together as a covenant community for the promises that have been spoken to you. Now I want to do two things, or one, one last thing here. Linda, will you help me out for a minute? Will you come up here? Yeah, Linda Purdy. You, you okay to walk? Okay. Hey, Sylvia, will you help Jeff up here real quick? Just right here in the front. Tyler, where are you at? Get up here. You, you back there? I saw you back there somewhere. caught that word about the alabaster box right up front here right 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 front right to the front Caleb loves me right. he loves a lot of you too alright all right. yeah Tyler right here brother so I was standing in worship and I, and I believe the Lord impressed upon me this verse and he, he started speaking this to me earlier Tyler and I were hanging out a little bit this week, and I, I found myself begin to pray over the, this over him, and I was so struck by it in my heart that God began to minister that to me about some of you here in this audience. I want to read a verse of scripture. I want to do one thing, and then we're going to pray. Call you for. But I hear the Lord say, I believe I hear the Lord saying over you three simple words. I see. And as I'm standing over there in worship, I'm realizing, and God specifically gave me these three people because they are representative of what I believe many of you feel. And let me read this passage to you in 2 Corinthians. It says this, now we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this surpassingly great power is from God and not from us. We have this treasure, this, this eternal treasure that has eternity in it, but it's been deposited inside of earthly vessels that are fragile and easily breakable. And 
in a lot of the discussion that we've been having about covenant community, what you realize and what I believe I heard the Lord say so strongly this morning, that your miracle, your treasure is hiding somewhere in this room in one of these earthen vessels. That the thing, the key to unlock something that you're believing for is hiding in a vessel that you're probably not even recognizing. That, that oftentimes at the core of covenant community the prophetic is recognizing that there's an earthen vessel next to you that has something deposited in there that God specifically put in there for you. And so how do we find it? I believe the Lord's inviting us to go into a supernatural treasure hunt. I, I believe the Lord is calling us to each other, to one another, to say, what has God hidden inside of you that he put there because I would need it at a particular point in my life like Brandon had for me? So this morning, I want to say one last thing, and if you want to come forward in a few moments, and I want you, and you want someone to agree with you in prayer and to minister over to you, there may be some prophetic that operate. If you don't have a word to war with, let's get you one. How about that? Let's see what God will say this morning. Let's see what God will do in these earthen vessels, what treasure God's put on the inside of them for you this morning. And then these three up here, I want you to know that just like God's hidden treasure, I believe these three here for this time right now are a prophetic pair. I believe that what God is saying is on the inside of these three, they're a picture of what's hiding. How many of you know Jeff here? How many of you have gotten the opportunity to mine out of him what's in him? I've spent time talking with him. And, and the treasure, the blessing in your life that you can incur by spending time pulling out and mining out the treasure in this earthen vessel. Linda Purdy, Tyler Harris, there's so much inside of him, like it will wear you out. Uh, that's not a bad thing. Like you will never have a boring conversation with Tyler Harris. But, but in that, there's a world on the inside of him that, that, that God has tapped. There, there's something, e even in his weakness, in all of our weaknesses, there's treasure on the inside of him. So I want to do this right now. So if you want to come, don't be awkward. I want you to come. We want someone to agree with you right now. Either you want to get, some, get a little bit of freedom over despising prophecy, you're afraid of prophecy, you want someone to agree with you over a word that hasn't come to pass yet, or you simply would like for someone to pray with you, I want you to come right now. It doesn't have to be uh, awkward. It doesn't have to, we're not going to pull a lot of attention to yourself. I want you to find a person that's up here right now, and they're going to begin to agree with you and pray over you. And uh, if, if, if we need to uh, break off into groups of two or three, and these up here, uh, these three, Tyler's ready to pray with you, Jeff's ready to pray with you, Linda's ready to pray with you right now. If you guys would like, I want us to go on a divine treasure hunt, and the rest of you sitting down in the audience this morning, 
I want you to allow the Lord to bring you into this treasure hunt. I want you to ask him to show you who's holding treasure in their earthen vessel over the next coming weeks and days and months. I want you to allow the Lord to covenant with the Lord to say, God, lead me to the people that are holding something that I need. That may sound selfish, but it's not. Because that's how we start to learn and to begin to know people by the Spirit is that we begin to connect with them at a spiritual level, not just over sports and fishing and all the other stuff. So come on up. If that's still you, don't hesitate. We still got Jeff up here. We still got Tyler. They want to pray for somebody. They didn't know they wanted to pray for somebody, but they do. We got Calvin right over here. If you still want prayer, I want you to come on forward. Father, as we close out and the rest of what happens here today, we pray that, Father, you would put the prophetic back into its proper place and that as the witness and the testimony of Jesus, that, Lord, at heart of the Father, God, we pray earnestly that the revelation of Jesus Christ would grow and become so large that it would displace every other divine occupation or worldly occupation. Lord, that you would give us divine preoccupation with the Son of God that you would visit, that you would nurture, and that you would grow the revelation of Jesus, the testimony of Jesus in the hearts of your people. That collectively as a body, that you would begin to increase the knowledge of the glory of the Lord at heart of the Father. Lord, I begin to just pray right now over the worship team that you would begin to increase the knowledge of the glory of the Lord over every musician, over Allison, that you would take them in the depths of the mysteries and the excellencies of Christ and that out of that every week when they come into this room that they would take help take us into journeys of knowing Jesus deeper and greater, that you would give us such an ability here to make great to make the fame, to make the reputation, to make the greatness of God known in all of Lakeland, that you would increase Christ in this body, that you would increase the revelation of Jesus in each individual, that that testimony that was deposited there, that it would begin to grow and that you would begin to increase Christ in every area of their lives that it would begin to displace emotional wounding, that it would begin to displace uh, wrong thinking, that you would produce uh, Christ, the character of the Christ, the nature of Christ in their lives in every place. And as we come together as a corporate body, that you would bring us into a covenant community that is not necessarily just a cure for loneliness, but it's a community that you can completely fill with who you are that you would help us to build you a body here that you completely fill, that you completely lead as the head, Jesus. We pray that you would become so great that it would change, Lord, that the great revival that we've been praying for and believing for, that you would begin to increase, that the knowledge of your glory, that who you are and all of your wonder and your splendor would be made known, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that you would open the eyes of our understanding to see the surpassing greatness of who you are, Jesus that you would cause every single one of us in this building and in this body to begin to gaze upon the one whose eyes burn like fire and that you would sear into our hearts the excellencies of Christ. And we thank you, Father, for what you're doing here at Heart of the Father. We thank you that we are a people who love well. 
that you are depositing in this church a true supernatural revelation of the heart of the Father, that by name we would possess in here a heart of the Father, that the Father's heart would be alive and well inside of this body, and that people would come here to find and to discover the revelation of who Jesus is. And Father, we thank you for all that you're doing. And Lord, we take the opportunity right now to stand up and to take our place. Lord, we repent for being spectators. We repent for being audience members. And we say we're willing to step in and find our place and our function within this body. We become the joint and the bone and the marrow and the muscle and all the other body parts. We find the place that you're connecting us to and we take our place in the body that you're building. Thank you, Father, in Jesus.